We are going to read from Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, now risen and ascended and seated in glory, we ask again for your spirit, that word and spirit would come together And do this magical, marvelous, wonderful work of taking the truth of your word and drilling it deep into our souls, where there it will do its life-changing work. Come, Lord Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. There are a couple of women mentioned in this passage, Mary Magdalene and one who is called the other Mary. There were several Marys that were at the cross. There was Mary Magdalene. There was Mary, the mother of Jesus. There was Mary, the wife of Clopas. Uh, We don't know who the other Mary is in this particular passage, but if you read the other gospel narratives, these, these women all show up, not only Mary Magdalene and Mary, this Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, but also Joanna, the wife of Chusa, interesting person, who was, Chusa was the butler, he was the, he was the Carson of Herod's household, he was the, the, the master of the house. And then there is Mary, the wife of Clopas. And then of course, beyond the women, there are, there are the men, the disciples, John and Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel and the others. Many of you, and some of you recently, have experienced what these folks experienced on a Friday afternoon 20 centuries ago. Mary, the mother of Jesus, watched her son die. The victim of a horrific miscarriage of justice hanged on a wooden cross. Mary Magdalene watched as the life slowly seeped 
from the body, from the lungs, from the pores of the only man in the world who had ever truly loved her and who had restored her, giving her dignity and honor and wholeness. The other women, the other Marys and Joanna, watched as Jesus slowly died, friends of one another, left frightened, confused, and helpless. The disciples scattered, their hopes dashed, their dreams destroyed, their longings unfulfilled. A couple of them, if you read the end of Luke's gospel, are on a road back home to a place called Emmaus, a little village seven miles or so from Jerusalem. And they're approached by this person who, as it turns out, is Jesus and And as they describe what has happened, they capture what it must have felt like for the disciples. We thought he was going to be the one who would restore the fortunes of Israel. Death on a Friday afternoon. And then a hurried burial in a stone tomb. A tomb carved out of the rocks. The gracious gift of a wealthy man from a place called Arimathea. And then home before the sun went down. Home to celebrate Passover and the Sabbath. Home to celebrate. What do you do after someone you love has died? Do you eat? Are things normal? You wash the clothes, do you cut the grass, you go play golf, do you sleep? The hours pass into the darkness of Friday night, into the early hours of the Sabbath day, Saturday morning. Did Mary sleep? Did Mary Magdalene? And then what of Saturday? The long, long, slow day with the memory of the day before and the strange events of that day. Everything growing dark at about three o'clock in the afternoon. And then people talking about strange things happening in the temple, the veil separating the holiest of places from everything else, torn from top to bottom. But the death looming like a shadow over every conscious moment. Were there recollections? Did anybody recall what Jesus had said only days before? Did anybody take hope in? Did anybody find solace in, find comfort in these things that Jesus had said that something profoundly dramatic would happen, something utterly and entirely unprecedented, unpredictable, something that would in fact change everything? Did any of those folks remember what Jesus said? That on the third day, after the death on Friday afternoon, there would be a resurrection. Did they think about that through that long Saturday And then into that second night 
As they were again engulfed and consumed in darkness, did they sleep? Could they sleep? How does one sleep in the midst of such grief and confusion? And did they have the experience, having fallen asleep, of being awakened maybe as the sun began to crest over the horizon and the first rays of light shot across the sky? Did they have that experience That experience that you have when something tragic has happened and you first become conscious and everything seems to be okay, but then the darkness washes over you and the unremitting grief captures your heart. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? For some of us, but for others, it's not at all hard. And then it's the Dawn breaks, and each of the four Gospels accounts this in the first few verses. Look at Mark, look at Luke, look at John. They all make reference to the first day of the week and to the women trudging through the darkness, carrying their grief with them, going to the tomb for one purpose, to anoint a dead body. That is what they expected. They expected to get to the tomb. They expected to see this massive stone rolled against the opening. In Mark's gospel, they question, they query, they wonder with one another, will anybody be there who could roll the stone out of the way? It's too big for us. It's not our tomb. Belongs to someone else. Will anybody be there who can roll the stone away so that we can anoint the dead body of Jesus who died on a Friday afternoon? And then they get there. And what they expected was not what they found. What they found was what they could not have expected. That the stone was rolled away. That the grave cloths were lying in place on the stone cold table where the body had been. Angels clothed in brilliance. And a word from the angels, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Go, go, go and tell his disciples. All four gospels present the same thing from different vantage points, but they all present the same thing. Details are a little different in John. A little different from Matthew, a little different from Luke, a little different from Mark. But the bottom line is the same. The body was gone and everything, everything is different. Jesus was seen. Jesus was heard from. Jesus was touched. Jesus was embraced. Jesus was eaten with and walked with over the course of the subsequent 40 days. Paul recounts in 1 Corinthians 15 specific individuals who saw him, who ate with him, who heard from him. And he mentions himself last of all. He appeared also to me as one untimely born. Folks, everything is different. Everything is different because of the resurrection. We need four hours to do justice to this. 
I have somewhere in the vicinity of 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. (laughs) There is no way that we can give full attention to the fact of the resurrection in the next few minutes. N.T. Wright published a book in 2002. It is the latest, it is the most comprehensive study of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. It is 800 pages in length. It is a book which by its very size suggests to us that this event commands that we pay attention to it. So we have to skate across some things and do it ever so, ever so quickly. But here are some brief observations. First, the fact of the resurrection. Here is the bottom line. Either it happened or it didn't. Either it happened or it didn't. If it happened, everything has changed. When I was first a Christian, when I was 20 years old, first a Christian, which may sound strange and odd, maybe to, to some of you, someone here, I wasn't always a Christian. I've said this before. I, didn't, I wasn't born in this black robe. I wasn't born a Christian. At 20 years of age, I came to understand by God's grace that Christianity really was true and by God's grace believed it to be true. And I began to share with my friends, what else do you do when something magical and and overwhelming and glorious penetrates your soul and changes you? What else do you do? You talk about it. You share it with people. And I shared it with my friends And my friends would respond and say, I'm so happy for you. I'm so happy for you. And I was puzzled by that. And it took me a long time to sort it out. But I finally began to realize that they were saying something like this. I'm so happy that you've come to believe this in the way that I've come to believe something else. And then it took me a while longer to realize, to come to the conclusion, that there really are different categories of belief. That all beliefs are not the same. We live, and I've mentioned this before, we live in a culture in which individualism and personalism and trust in reason, dating all the way back to the 18th century, have so shaped us that we think, Belief with respect to everything is simply a matter of personal preference. With respect to everything. But I've really come to understand that there are different kinds of belief, different categories of belief, if you will. For example, some of you are Republicans and some of you are Democrats because you have certain beliefs about the way the world ought to operate and function. Some people are socialists and some people are free market capitalists. But you see, what you believe about those things, whether economic or political and how life ought to be configured, that is of a different type and a different kind of belief from the kind we're talking about here. 
Look, either George Washington was the first president of the United States, or he wasn't. And it has nothing to do with what you prefer to believe about it. Either all of those guys did sign the Declaration of Independence, or they didn't. And it has nothing to do with what you would prefer to believe about all of them or any one of them. Either those things happened or they didn't. And clearly, while the implications wouldn't be as massive for us if we were to learn that the historians had botched it rather significantly by attributing to George Washington this honor of being the first president of the United States, when in fact he was not, we'd still get up in the morning and have breakfast and go about our business. We'd be shot. We'd be surprised. I doubt very much that life would change for any of us, very significantly. We would have learned something about historians and about George Washington. Either he was or he wasn't, you see. What we're talking about this morning is of that order, of that kind. Either it happened or it didn't. And you have to ask yourself, I ask this question of you at Christmas, at Advent, all the time. Why do we put out Christmas trees? Why do we put up lights? Did the commercial hawkers just dream this thing up in their brains so that 60% of our economy, 65% of our economy would depend upon those few weeks that are wrapped around the celebration of Christmas? Is it a commercial enterprise? That's not sufficient, folks. That's not adequate to account for why Christmas is observed. Either it happened or it didn't. And the same thing is true here. Easter eggs, chocolate candies seem to me to be rather tragically a significant diminution bringing down, minimizing of the glory of the event. But the event is what explains why people do the Easter bunny thing. You've got to account for it, my friends. Either it happened or it didn't happen. So the question becomes, did it? Did it? And a person has to wrestle with this, it seems to me, to be intellectually honest. You simply can't dismiss the resurrection of Jesus and say it doesn't matter because the implications are of eternal significance and consequence. The date on your newspaper. How do you account for that, you see? It has to be something more than a crapshoot. And so that's the first thing, the fact of the resurrection. And if you, if you wonder about the fact of the resurrection, let me suggest not that you read N.T. Wright's 800 pages, but that, you, but that you pick up a copy of Tim Keller's wonderful book, The Reason for God, in which he has a chapter on the resurrection. And there are so many insightful and very cogent answers to questions that people raise. 
Just, just among many examples that could be mentioned, a couple. There is, in the first place, the embarrassing matter of the women. The embarrassing matter of the women. Women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And women's testimony was not admissible in either a Jewish court or a Roman court. If you're trying to fabricate some story of Jesus living again, why in the world, in each case, in each of the four Gospels, would women be the first witnesses to this event? It makes no sense. But they are. And then there's this. The consistent testimony of the disciples. Folks, they never cracked Throughout the course of their lives, they continued to maintain that this Jesus who died on a Friday afternoon was alive, had been seen, had been eaten, had eaten with the disciples, had walked with the disciples, and they never cracked. Very different for Haldeman and Ehrlichman and John Dean and those involved in the Watergate conspiracy. When the heat was on, they cracked and ratted on each other. Very different when Lance Armstrong was caught in his deceit. As long as there was one story and there was no heat on, All of the supporting voices spoke the same story. But when the heat was on and somebody's life and reputation and future were at stake, one by one they began to crack and Lance Armstrong was exposed. The disciples never cracked and went to their deaths affirming the fact of the resurrection. There's so much more. I'll just invite you to read Tim's book as a way to get started with wrestling with this. But here's the second point. Second point is this. The resurrection really happened, really occurred. Then you really have no choice but to accept the whole of the person of Jesus Christ. Tim, in his book, in this chapter on the resurrection, mentions that people will come to him and will say, well, you know, I I like this about Jesus, and I like that about Jesus, and I find this interesting in Jesus, but I I really don't get this in Jesus, or I reject this about Jesus, or this I don't find acceptable. Tim's response is to say, look, if the resurrection really happened, you have no choice but to accept everything that Jesus said. And if it didn't happen you have no real intellectual reason to listen to anything that he said. It is an all or nothing proposition with Jesus. It's interesting that Paul in his letter to the Romans begins in his first seven verses by sort of outlining what it is that he's going to talk about in this letter and buried right in the center of those first seven verses is this Stunning statement, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. Declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. 
Was Jesus the Son of God before the resurrection? Absolutely. Was he the Son of God after the resurrection? Absolutely. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying basically this. It is the resurrection which confirms for us, which affirms for us the entirety of his person and his work, his incarnation, his life of obedience, and especially his work on the cross. Especially his work on the cross. It is the resurrection of Jesus by this mighty act of power effected by the Spirit of God that confirms for us that everything we read and see in the Gospels with respect to Jesus is to be received and accepted. And as we've pointed out in past weeks, there is but one response. And it is the response that C.S. Lewis points out. The only reasonable response is to fall before him and worship him as the God incarnate that he is. Isn't it interesting? I find this interesting. That as we think about the person of Christ and we think about the work of Christ, this resurrection confirms most especially his work on the cross. His resurrection confirms, validates, vindicates most especially his work on the cross. It's fascinating that the cross has come to be the symbol of Christian faith, not a rock, not the outline of an empty tomb, but the cross. So when you accept the resurrection, you accept the totality of who Jesus is in all of his roles, in everything that he said, and most especially in his work on the cross. And this is where I wish I had 18 hours and not just four. Because you ask, what did the cross achieve? And this is the third thing. This is the third thing. What did the cross achieve? What does this work of Jesus achieve? We're all narcissists, right? We all want to know what's in it for me. It's like Kevin Costner at the end of Field of Dreams, right? He built the field. He cut down his corn. But it's James Earl Jones who gets to walk into the corn at the edge of the field and see what's out there on the other side. And Kevin Costner says, I built the field. I put myself at risk. What's, what's in it for me? Well, here's what's in it for you. What does the cross mean? As we noted last week, the cross means that the innocent takes the place of the guilty. The innocent takes the place of the guilty. Do you remember Thursday night? Didn't you find this fascinating? Do you know that there were two Barabbases on Good Friday? There was Barabbas, the one whose name is identified in the texts, a name which literally means son of the father. There is a Barabbas who is a criminal who deserves to die, and then there is a Barabbas, the truer and greater son of his father, who doesn't deserve to die. 
but who is the innocent one takes the place of the guilty. Do you know what the cross means? The cross means cleansing. The cross means forgiveness. The cross means that everywhere there is sin and disobedience, there is the possibility of forgiveness and reconciliation. There is the possibility of reunion with God through the cross. That's a big deal, folks. You know there's something wrong. I know there's something wrong. You know there's something wrong, not just out there, but there's something wrong in here, in me, in you. And that something has created an alienation, a separation, and the cross is there that that alienation might be overcome and the possibility of being restored to communion, to fellowship, the possibility of being cleansed, the possibility of being positively righteous before a holy God, that reality, intensely personal, is what the cross achieves. So there's the possibility of reunion and restoration, but you know there's more. The cross achieves way more. I don't have time to go to the passage, read the passage. Look at Colossians 1, verses 19 through 20, where Paul says that it is through the cross of Christ, through the blood of Christ, that a reconciliation has been effected between God and everything else, whether things in heaven or things on earth. You look around you, you look at this world, you know it's broken. You know it, you feel it, you carry it with you. Folks, I am now the six million dollar man. I carry a computer around in my chest as a result of that episode last fall. I have a loop monitor inserted in my chest to monitor my heart. I hope they find nothing. I'm not being cute or overly dramatic. I'm telling you that I carry around in my body, as do you in yours, the reality of the brokenness that characterizes this world. And Paul is telling us that by the cross of Christ, Everything that is broken is being remade. So that the day, the day out there in the future is coming. When the things that plague us will be forever gone. We sing, I've said this at Advent, I've said this at Advent. We sing joy to the world once or twice a year. We need to sing it every month simply for the verse in the hymn which says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. The cross effects a reconciliation between the God of the creation and the creation 
which labors under this curse and brokenness. But it doesn't stop there. If you go on to chapter 2 of Colossians, and again, I'm not going to read it. You go there, Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. Not only is there something in it for me, not only is there something in it for the whole of the creation, my friends, there is something in the cross for the devil of hell. There is something in the cross for the evil, the injustice, the unrighteousness that hangs like a pall over this world in which we live. Paul says that in the cross, God through the cross has made a public display of principalities and powers. It is through the cross that evil is exposed and disarmed. And the resurrection is the validation of all of this. The resurrection is the validation of the blessing and benefit of the cross for you personally, for the whole of the creation, and finally for the destruction of evil in every form in which it manifests itself. And still there is more. For is the resurrection not only a validation of the work of Christ on the cross in securing personal forgiveness and the reconciliation of the Father to this creation and the crushing of the head of the serpent and the destruction of every evil, the resurrection, the resurrection is your hope of a future resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 tells that story. Let me ask you, let me ask you, I plead with you, I beg of you that you would reflect upon this and think about it. What will happen to you when you die? There's no if about this. What will happen to you when you die? Paul's affirmation in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18 is that for those who have come to this cross, embraced this cross, those who have come to this Jesus and embraced him for all that he is, everything that he is, and with all of the power and hope and transformation that he brings, for those who come to this Jesus, there is the prospect of a new body raised as his was raised to dwell forever in a new heaven and a new earth. My friends, because of the resurrection, it really is the case that everything is different. The last thing I have in my notes are these incredible words from Job sung as a beautiful Beautiful aria in Handel's Messiah immediately following the Hallelujah Chorus. I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the last day. And though worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh 
shall I see God. Please, please, wrestle for the first time. Wrestle for the thousandth time with the reality of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, everything is different. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that it's true. It's just not like other things that we embrace. It's true, really true. Give us grace to see it, believe it, and see everything that it means, all of the hope that there is for us in this spectacular reality, your resurrection. And may your blessing rest upon us as we have heard these things, listened to these things. Would you give us grace, all of us, to take them in and go from this place a bit different because we've been here and because you've been among us. We ask in your name. Amen.